0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Gig Speeds, powered by fiber. From Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises by a coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. I want to leave, and I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I want to leave at a time when I still feel the work is solid, and that I know that I still love what I do and where I do it.
1: everybody. I'm Fran Spielman, and with me today is an idol of mine, Carol Marine, who is retiring after a stellar career in journalism in a thousand fronts. Carol, thanks for joining us.
0: You are welcome, Franny dear. Just one clarification, not retiring, just leaving the stage of broadcasting. I'll still write, okay. and I'll well, still, be a, still be on the faculty at DePaul.
1: Okay, I know that, but you announced this week that the reporting, writing, performing part of your outstanding career is over. Why now?
0: Um, And it's more the performing. I'll still report in different places, but on air, you're right. On air, um, because it's time. I, you know, I've thought about this a long time. I've seen people stay too long at the dance, and, and sometimes get bitter or angry or something. I want to leave, and I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I want to leave at a time when I still feel the work is solid and that I know that I still love what I do and where I do it. I think that's the best exit strategy, at least for me.
1: Knowing when to leave in life is extremely important. A lot of politicians haven't learned that lesson. You and I both know that. Why is now the time to step back? Is it because of the changes in journalism? Uh, what, what about it? Is it your age? What?
0: It's, um, it's not about the changes in journalism. There, every decade that I've been in journalism, and you've been in journalism, there's been some You know, permutation, some change, some alteration in the way we deliver it or the management we work for or whatever. And uh, it honestly isn't age. I mean, uh, I am 71. Uh, As Harold Washington used to say, you know, I'm whatever age. I look like I'm 40. I feel like I'm 20. Well, you know what? I, I sort of do. But I just believe that there are moments, and, and I've never switched a job because I had a, a five-year plan to go someplace else. I always had to sort of feel it in my gut that the ch- I needed to make the change. The same thing is true here. Um, I just know that um, this is kind of a, a perfect alignment of my planet, and, uh, and it took me a while to get to that point. But I've thought about it a lot, and it works.
1: Frankly, I don't know how you've balanced all that you've been doing. You run a center for journalism at DePaul. You teach there. You're reporting for Channel 5. You're doing the same thing for Channel 11 in Chicago tonight. You're planning to write a book. How have you juggled all that?
0: Uh, sometimes not well at all, i got to tell you. i mean, there are some days that are better than other days. Um, and some days the juggle works perfectly, and other times you slam into a wall. I don't think there's ever a perfect juggle or a perfect juggle between work and home, um, though I've tried to make those things work as well. And so, you know, um, I I I don't have a formula uh, for it, and um, and and maybe you do, though I think you probably are in the same in the same place that that some days you're just a better juggler than others.
1: Well, I have one job. You have five. I mean, I'm reminded of the guy on the Ed Sullivan show who ran around spinning five plates at one time and tried to prevent each of them from crashing to the ground in little pieces. I don't know how you do
0: that. But you know, but Franny, you have, I'll open the Sun Times and see 10 of your bylines on a given day because you have managed to, I don't know, play five layer chess in your head. I mean, you do it with one job. I just happen to have done it three different places um, at once, but sometimes it's the same thing.
1: Let's talk about your storied career. You started as a teacher. How did you go from that into journalism?
0: Uh, I was, uh, a teacher at Dundee high school when I got out of the university of Illinois and I was a debate coach. Um, and, uh, then I got married or was planning to get married and my husband and I decided we go wherever one of us was making the most money. And he was a professor at the university of Tennessee. And, um, and he won, he won in that money comparison. Though neither of us was making very much. I went to Tennessee and I could not find a teaching job. And, uh, one of his colleagues said, you know, over at WBIR TV is CBS affiliate. They're looking for a woman talk show host because their talk show host, um, was leaving. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't do that. And, uh, Jonathan, my husband said, Oh, you're probably afraid, aren't you? Know, doing something like that, and I said, "I'm afraid of nothing," and, <laughs> whether I was or I wasn't. And I went, I went to WBIR, and um, they were a pretty condescending in the audition, saying, "Listen, honey, sit right here. You're going to interview a, a famous film. Pro- what a surprise! <laughs> You're going to do an interview a famous film producer." And I said, "Is he really?" And they said, "You'll see." And they brought out a, an old guy from the back named Albert Smith, who was very kind and whispered to me, listen, dear, uh, they tell me to make it really hard on you girls who are auditioning. So I'm not going to answer your questions. What I didn't know was that Albert Smith was really a devout, devout Christian. And when I, I thought, who needs this job? So I opened up the interview by saying, here's Albert Smith. He's a pornographer who has been condemned by every civic organization from the ACLU to the PTA. And poor Albert Smith was so horrified at being called a pornographer. He started to talk Um, and they hired me because um, my audition amused them. So that's how I got hired in television. But I failed as a talk show host because their idea then of a woman's talk show host in 1972 was somebody who did fashion and homecoming queens and makeup. And I put on uh, the Knoxville Ku Klux Klan in full regalia and said, you know, why do you do this? And uh, I was a little too newsy for them. So they sent me up to the newsroom where um, I started doing the kinds of stories that Women didn't do, but I knew I nobody else wanted to do it. I developed a prison beat and started going to the state prisons, and that's when uh, I <laughs> I got hired by WSM in Nashville, which is a much much larger station. And then the prison beat brought me my first governor to go to prison because that was my story in Nashville was Ray Blanton, and that
1: great preparation for Illinois. Yes.
0: Yeah, that sent me to Chicago, uh, where I became <laughs> oh, really? a wow. weekend anchor and reporter.
1: What kind of sexism have you faced along the way?
0: You know, like you, like a lot of us, like maybe all of us, um, a bunch over the years. But and what I find is I, I, I encounter women who say, "Well, I, I've never been." Harassed, uh, and I've I've never uh, encountered sexism, and I think a lot of that is you you push it away and you decide to forget it. And sometimes I would too. I can remember one news executive years ago when uh, we were on a big story in Washington D.C. wanted um, said, "Oh, you look tired. Um, come, I'm going to come down to your room and give you a massage." I mean, oh I, I, got out of, I, I got out of there. Uh, I called my colleague, Paul Hogan, who was also there. We were at an inauguration. And um, I said, Paul, yeah, meet me for dinner. We're getting out of here because this guy's coming down to my room and I'm not going to be here. Um, so, you know, there, there were those things along the way. I was told once by a network executive that I was um, too hard news for. For a woman, I was told by a guy who was thinking of hiring me at another station that I was too big J journalism for a woman. Uh, um, you know, so Beats it's <laughs> the hell out of me. But um, <laughs> but, you know, but those things would happen. But over time um, uh, happened less because, um, you know, I I had been there long enough to uh At least people knew even if they were tempted to say something like that, they weren't gonna say it to me.
1: And in those days, you just handled it. There were no EEOC complaints or Me Too anything. You just handled it personally.
0: You you handled it personally. And um, and, and one of the great things I think that Me Too has provided um, to especially younger women is um, the help to say, you know what you can you can say out loud and proud, absolutely not, and report them. Um, and and that I think I think that's been one of the great gifts of the Me Too movement is emboldening women and especially younger women uh, to not stand for it.
1: Yeah, because it was a lonely road for you and I.
0: Yes, yeah, it was a lonely road and. And we and we sort of of uh, uh, kept it to ourselves and I think you know, we would tell good close friends, um, maybe, but um, but we wouldn't wouldn't broadcast it because then you were a head case. Oh, look at you know, she's nuts. Um, and I remember a federal agent once telling me about one of his coworkers, a female federal agent, when she protested corruption in a federal agency, he said to me, well, you know, she's a little PMSy, you know? And oh, God. Uh, yeah, oh. but, but you've heard it, you've heard it and I've heard it for years.
1: Sure. Well, and you have a brother-in-law named Garrick Utley who was a famous reporter at NBC. What did he teach you?
0: Um, he, you know, Garrick and I, and, and Garrick died a couple of years ago. Garrick, um, was an NBC correspondent. He was an ABC correspondent. Um, he taught me that the business is really hard and really complicated, but that at the end of the day, it's your gracefulness under fire. Um, you know, it's how you carry yourself with still enough humanity and enough gentle touch as well as hard news approach that um, you, can, you can make your way through this through this
1: mess. Give me an example of how you walk that fine line. Um, I think part of it is
0: always remembering, um, we tend to think of ourselves as soloists. This is my, st- my story and my project. But in, for instance, in, in my newsrooms for my whole life, uh, I never did anything alone. I mean, I would stand next to my producer and people would come up to me and say, wow, Carol, that was a great story. Knowing full well what the producer did, but congratulating me because I was on camera. I you mean, were the face. And so you have, yeah. have the face and the voice. And you have to remember and you have to remind yourself all the time to, um, to extend the, the the praise and what whatever glory may or may not come to the other people who helped make it happen uh, and without whom uh, it might not have happened at all.
1: The Jerry Springer episode was infamous. You and Ron Majors walked away from your anchor jobs at Channel 5 in protest. For those too young to know that very famous story, why don't you tell them what happened and why you felt so strongly about it to take a stand like that.
0: So it's 1997, we're under uh, a new management and the management had already done a number of things we absolutely rebelled against. Like having the sales department uh, insinuate itself into the newsroom. So if there was a commercial advertiser selling smoke detectors, we would be urged to do a smoke detector story and then the tagline would be you can pick up your first alert smoke detector at wherever Walgreens, Jewel Osco. Uh, So it began with that kind of breach of newsroom proper policy that, that Ron Majors and I rebelled against. I refused to read what they wrote. I was suspended a couple of times, but with pay and always told, please come back for the 10 o'clock news, even though we may suspend you for an early show. So (laughs) there were a lot of egregious things happening before they decided to hire Jerry Springer, but there were a lot of inside baseball things. The general public couldn't necessarily appreciate or understand. Then they said, we're going to hire Jerry Springer as a commentator on the 10 o'clock news and you and Ron are going to introduce him. And, you know, we weren't opposed to commentary. There are a lot of good commentators around and you could bicycle in a whole different bunch of them. Jerry Springer was not going to be one of them. And he was working in the upstairs studio producing his show every day of, you know, 700 pound women mud wrestling in a kiddie pool and that kind of story. And uh, and so it was sort of the it was sometimes the least of the egregious things management was trying to pull off. But it was the last one. And it was the absolute clearest one to understand without without a lot of conversation that this was. And we had a good reputation at, at WMAQ News. We weren't happy talk. We weren't silly. We were serious. We were solid. Um, and so I finally said, I need to get out of this contract right now. And at first the station said, no, absolutely not. And, but, uh, word got out, uh, Rob Cedar, who was working for the Sun times at the time was, was doing stories. The Tribune was doing stories and the Times one had a, a headline a week before it all blew up to ask, to wonder out loud with us on the front page, were uh, we gonna walk out? And, uh, and that ended up creating kind of a wall of public pressure against the station. And then they finally said, okay, you can get out of here. But because they thought it was going to be such a great kind of circus moment, beginning the May sweeps book, because I quit on the air on May 1st, um, they let all sorts of people into the newsroom for that last broadcast, they, I would look up and see Mike Flannery of channel two interviewing Jim Avila of NBC news with Rich Samuels of channel 11 interviewing. It was crazy. It was crazy. And Ron and I held hands as I said, my last good night on uh, NBC uh, channel five news in 1997.
1: And after Channel Five, you went to Channel Two as the solo anchor and tried to pioneer a new kind of newscast that didn't really work. Let's talk about that. What was the concept? Why didn't it work?
0: Uh, well, there were two. So I went to I went to CBS and and uh, WVBM. So I went as a network correspondent, um, uh, spending some of my time in New York, and I worked um, as the solo anchor of this experimental. Newscast. Well, one of the reasons it didn't work was the general manager who launched it uh, immediately quit and left. And the bosses, one of the bosses who was the architect of Jerry Springer at MAQ, then came over to CBS Network and put an end to it. Um, But they, you know, it was a great idea of doing this. It's sort of the the idea that um, News Nation. WGN America is doing now. It's just straight news, no banter, no bias. Do That's it bland. as straight as, as you yeah. can, as planned. And, you know, and there were some commentators, both on the Tribune side, uh, I think on the Tribune side especially, where, you know, Carol Marine is trying to force you to eat your broccoli. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it, it lasted, it lasted about eight months until these former managers of MAQ who'd been fired came to CBS to put an end to that newscast. But you know, I'll never be sorry we tried it. I'll never be sad that we gave it a go. I thought it was an earnest, ardent, proper effort, and um, and it just didn't take. It was right before nine eleven. 11 I do believe that if it had lasted... Into and up to 9-11, it would have been on the air a lot longer because then suddenly that appetite for news, news, news had really increased exponentially. But that's looking in the rearview mirror, and I try not to do that too much.
1: On September 11th of this year, you were reunited on the air with the first responder who saved you that day 19 years ago at the World Trade Center. Why don't you tell the story, for those who don't know it, about why you were there, what happened, and how close you came?
0: So on September 11th, uh, 2001, I was um, working for uh, CBS News 60 Minutes. I was in the broadcast center because I'm a good Midwestern girl. I was there earlier than any of the New Yorkers. So I'm kind of alone up there in the offices, and there are monitors everywhere, as they always are. And, and you see these planes hitting the trade centers. And I knew at that moment um, that I had to get down to where that was happening because police lines quickly form and close up, and then reporters can't get anywhere near it. So I raced there um, and, uh, and as I'm racing there, thousands of people are rushing in the other direction away from the Trade Center. And they're saying to me, go back, go back, don't do it. And you, know, and you say with all this sort of invincibility, ah, CBS news, I'm a reporter, don't worry. I know what I'm doing. Well, you know, uh, and I was within sort of, I was on the West Side Highway. Um, talking to my producer, Don Mosley, and our assistant producer, Susie Evans, and one of the few times my cell phone would work because the circuits were all jammed, just as the first tower dissolved, just crashed to the ground, you know, like a, you know, like a pile of Legos that was uh, thrown down. And um, I got to the West, uh, West Street, past the West Side Highway, it was covered in ash and filled with firefighters. Uh, and I was showing my press pass and all of a sudden the street began to shake and rumble and a firefighter turned around, looked at me and screamed, run. And I started to run uh, because the second tower was coming down. I, um, I tripped and fell and he grabbed me by the waist, threw me up on my feet told me to take off my high heels, and we ran to an adjacent building that had a marble overhang, Uh, and he threw threw himself against me, covered my body with his. Um, I've always uh, told this story the, the same way. I could feel his heart pounding against my backbone. Because that's, I, you know, it felt like it could be the, the bitter end. In an instant, as that building came down uh, and there, there was a fireball at its base where the jet pool jet fuel ignited, um, the world went black because the air was filled with intense black smoke and dust and pieces of the things that were in that trade center, pieces of buildings, pieces of people. Um, and, and the firefighter whose name I have never gotten, I didn't have the presence of mind to get it before, he handed me off to a New York City police officer named Brendan Duke, who was somewhere in, in this mess of air and, and things. And Brendan Duke took my hand And we carefully, because we couldn't see, couldn't see your hand in front of you, walked very carefully through it until eventually the light began to to pierce the blackness and the smoke. The further we got away, we could see a little better and see a little better. Brendan Duke, whose name I did get, I got everyone else's name after that, handed me off to another firefighter who put an oxygen mask on my face so I could breathe a little better. And then uh, I started making my way down the West Side Highway again, back to CBS. They thought gas lines were going to explode. A paramedic vehicle that was going by stopped, threw me on their laps, and tore down further um, down the road, dropped me off at a New York City bus that was limping back to its garage because it had a flat tire. The empty bus bus and driver dropped me off at CBS news. I walked in covered in ash, got on the set with Dan Rather and told the story of my rescue by the firefighter whose name I still don't know. And Brendan Duke. Um, and that's what, uh, when channel five last week called me and said on nine 11, will you talk about all of this? Zarada Sambal our anchor said, um, Carol, how do you like surprises? And, you know, I'm not too keen on them live on the air, i got to tell you. <laughs> and there in a split screen was Brendan Duke. They had found him. And, um, and we were reunited. I was so touched and so amazed. And, and my question for him and his question for me was, how are you? How's your health? how are your lungs? Because, you know, anybody who was down there um, knows that there was, we breathed a lot of asbestos. Too, have you had any
1: ramifications from this?
0: Uh, I get a lot of um, bronchial things, but I check my, I have my lungs checked all the time. And, and so does Brendan, but here's the best part for Annie, Here's the best part for me. I called Brendan after the newscast, they'd given me his number and he said, You know, you don't know this, but that day, that morning, when you said my name to Dan Rather, my family in Ireland were watching because CBS was all on worldwide feeds because of what had happened on that attack. And his family in Ireland then called his family in New York to say, Brendan's not dead because cell phones weren't working. And Brendan couldn't call home and he couldn't leave his job to tell his family he was okay. They just knew he was in New York City, down in that area on duty that day. And so, you know, you want to talk about the power of reporting or being able to report the privilege of reporting. Brendan Duke's family got to know as soon as possible that he wasn't dead.
1: (laughs) Over the course of your career, you have covered a ton of federal investigations and broken tons of stories about them. Grey Lord, Incubator, Silver Shovel, Board Games, and now we have the current one, the biggest one of all, I think, targeting Ed Burke and Mike Madigan. What are your thoughts about this investigation and how it compares to the others?
0: Um, This, you're right, this is the biggest, I think. Um, I think it is the most kind of global in its reach um, of so many facets of it. I, I can't take any credit for Greylord, um, but Gambad and Incubator, um, we did break and shovel. Um, not Incubator, I'm sorry. Gamban and, and Silver Shovel. Um, but And they were pretty darn big investigations where many judges, many political officials, many lobbyists went down the drain of the correctional system. The the thing that distinguishes this, I think in a way is, it is being led by Amar Bashu, who is the uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney, who is also an organized crime U.S. Attorney. And though I do not know him, I've tried to learn a lot about him. And I think the way he and his team and John Lausch, his boss, have approached this, is like an organized crime investigation. And so, you know, they're looking at business. They're looking at um, lob- lobbying. They're looking at uh, uh, sort of under every rock. we at Commonwealth Edison, for God's sake. You know, one of the hugest utilities and its parent corporation, Exelon. I mean, they are going to the, the top of the civic leadership of this city, um, the people who normally head school boards and um, are on, on the Federal Reserve boards. I mean, they're looking at the pillars of the community as well as the politicians that who for years have been reputed to have done um, corrupt things but were never going to be indicted for them. I think this is a monstrous investigation.
1: And we talked about knowing when to leave. Are you surprised that Mike Madigan and Ed Burke have stayed so very long at the dance? I mean, I frankly can't believe (laughs) that Mike Madigan didn't step down when his daughter Lisa and the Attorney General wanted to run for governor. What father wouldn't?
0: Um, Mike Madigan. (laughs) it's It's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of staying too long, waiting for if it's news, one more big story, if it's um, politics, raising tons more money, having one more term, passing through one more election victorious. I, I don't know what it is, because it isn't ultimately about the money when it comes to politicians who haven't left the stage. It's about power. And maybe at the, uh, on the bottom of all of it, it's always about power, sometimes money, too. But I think it's the it's the adrenaline. It's the sense of being in charge. um, But whatever it is, those guys, Edward one of the slickest, richest politicians around is um, is scheduled to go back to prison at 82 or 83 on a second charge. It's unbelievable because they could have left so much sooner with plenty of cash on hand, and um, and not ended up facing uh, the grand juries and the U.S. attorney's wrath, um, but but they stayed too long.
1: Burke famously Apart said there are three ways for a Chicago alderman to end his career in the city council, the ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Which one do you think is at the end of his road?
0: I can't really guess. He's not a young man, um, but his case could take um, a long time to get to court because of Danny Solis, who, among others, wore a wire uh, and helped provide the government with uh, massive amounts of recorded material. All of that's discovery that his lawyers are entitled to troll through. Um, He's got pinstripe Winston and Strawn uh, doing his legal defense, you know, uh, it could take, it could take a while. It could take years. So I don't, I, I can't tell how that's going to go. Um, but, but regardless Fran of whether I'm on the news or not on the news, uh, I still know how to go to 219 South Dearborn and sit in a courtroom and watch. And you have to believe um, that if it's possible, I will, I will be in the gallery.
1: Let's talk about the mayors. You and I have covered Mike Belandick, Jane Byrne, Harold Washington, Gene Sawyer, Richard M. Daly, Rahm Emanuel, Lori Lightfoot. Who stands out as the best to you? I, I, I
0: don't think I can do best on this. Um, Most fun to cover. About all- that?
1: Most fun to cover?
0: well the the first most fun to cover was Jane Byrne by you know by a landslide I mean, I was with her as you were with her when she moved into Cabrini green um when she was went to was in you know just made mayor and went to washington um you know Jane was really interesting in history making Harold Washington was um really interesting and history making uh you know all of them are are in one way or another though have a common characteristic and i don't know if you'll agree with this or not but they all uh are ultimately in office on the fifth floor can be pretty imperious uh because they are the mayor and they're you know they're bigger than they're bigger than a congressman by a long shot. They're bigger than a U.S. senator by a long shot, and they and they command uh, a corporate organization, corporate-sized organization, that's immense. And so, I think there is a kind of of uh, being in charge. And yes, I'll be transparent, but I'll define transparency for you, and you won't.
1: Yeah. And before we go. Journalism has changed so very much over the course of your career. So many jobs have been cut, so many fewer publications, organizations doing investigative work. What is your advice to your journalism students? So our journalism
0: students at DePaul are, are just about to jump into the profession. They're seniors and graduate students. We, In advanced reporting, we give them sort of one more deep dive into complicated reporting. They um first of all are really excited to be going into it regardless of everything you just listed that their parents at the Thanksgiving dining room table are saying, I oh, got yeah, nuts to go in the news, you know, it's got a, a shrinking uh place where people don't respect what you do. I advise them uh now to be able to do it all, like you and like I have had to do it all. You're no longer a print reporter, friend. You're a a broadcaster. We see you um, on your show. We hear you on your show. We read you in Twitter. We see what you put on Facebook. We read you in the digital paper and maybe in the print paper. You have had to uh, adjust and be flexible and do it all. And so have I. And so must they. And through it all, through it all, they need three things. They need a sense of professional ethics that will guide them and keep them with a solid reputation. They need to write really well, and that needs to be tested every day. And they need to know how to report something where they step aside and let the story be the story. They need to understand the elements of basic journalism before they decide to travel further down the road into opinion. And, uh, and those three things, I think, will carry them uh, well.
1: And guess what? You've accomplished them all. Carol Marine, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck in the next chapter of your career as you step back. And congratulations on all that you've done. You're a doll, Franny. And we'll see you all next week. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why?